All right, we are beginning a series uh, here as a church for the next two months that we've entitled Faith for Exiles Living in a Post-Christian World. Um, this has been in about six months in design with the elder team and the teaching team, uh, and I think it's a pretty important series for us as a church because we are, we are not in Kansas anymore, Toto, when it comes to our faith. If you're paying any attention and you read the news, um, Christianity is moving to the margins if it's not already there, and we believe it's our job as elders to equip you for living in this new world. Um, we uh, will have to get used to how to live as minorities within the culture when it comes to our faith. When I was 18 years old, I took a plane over to Russia, and it was the summer right before the uh, coup d'etat in August of 1991, and I went there into Russia, which had oppressed Christianity for decades and decades, and if you were a believer in Russia, uh, even during the 60s, as late as 60 years ago, or as early as 60 years ago, there was a massive closure of churches. Two-thirds of all churches were closed. They closed seminaries. Uh, they closed the monasteries. They closed the convents. They banned uh, church services outside the walls. If you wanted to get uh, married or baptized uh, or have a funeral, you had to be personally registered with the government. You as a parent were not allowed to teach your children religion. Children were not allowed in church services. Okay, um, If you were a pastor, you were not allowed to make religion popular by your personal example or you'd be forced into retirement, arrested, or sent to prison. And you couldn't ring church bells out in the country. Siberia, and then to Vladivostok, and Habarovsk, and Novosibirsk, and I went in faith, who had lived under persecution their whole life. I saw for the first time in my life, as a Western kid, what it was like to tap into this faith of somebody who's lived in exile their entire life. And there was something about it that was strong, and it was attractive, and it was real, and it was authentic. And when they worshiped together, like there was no clock. It just wasn't even a thought for them. And I remember touching that, and I thought, my world was so different than that. I'm not saying we're in anywhere close to what communist Russia was like in regard to our faith, but I think there's a lot to learn from the global church as we start moving into exile as a faith. We are in need of becoming uh, experts at how to live in a world that no longer uh, worships God and values the scriptures. So we're going to begin this series together. I'll tell you some of the tools that we're looking at and encourage all of you to tap into these tools as well. Uh, the book that's probably been most helpful to us has been Good Faith by Kinnaman and Lyons, uh, Faith for Exiles, uh, another book that's been helpful, a podcast called This Cultural Moment. I would encourage you to buy those books, read them, listen to the podcast, uh, because we get about 30 to 40 minutes on Sunday morning. There's no way we'll be able to cover everything that needs to be covered. We'll be using in this series the book of Daniel as our tutorial. Uh, the context of Daniel is... It's like a literal Hunger Games type story, but basically Daniel, uh, the Jerusalem is conquered uh, by Babylon. They're brought into exile, uh, uh, Daniel and his friends, and they are there um, to serve in the capital uh, at, the, at the hand of the king. And as the scripture was read, we read Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Um, this begins kind of the narrative of what it's like 
to live in exile. And I first of all want to say to you this morning, we are living in Babylon. You are living in Babylon if you live in the United States of America. Some people might argue with me, I'd be glad to argue with anybody about this, that because we have a professed Christian in the White House, that Christianity has power in our culture. If you're paying any attention uh, and you're reading all the tea leaves, you know this is, this is not true, okay? We are living in Babylon. What is Babylon? It is a land that worships other gods. And this has been the story all throughout the scriptures. Babylon versus Jerusalem, the city of God versus the city of man. And this, is, this has been the two rivers all throughout Christian history. So Babylon is there in the page of Scripture from beginning to end, from the Tower of Babel all the way to Revelation. And you always have the people of God from the first pages of Genesis all the way throughout Revelation. Babylon is a place, but it's also an archetype of our collective human pursuits in reaction against God. And we are living in that culture. Fundamentally, what's different between Jerusalem and Babylon is that Jerusalem basically had God as their king, the God as described in the scriptures, and Babylon had Nebuchadnezzar. What does Nebuchadnezzar mean? It means Nabu has protected my inheritance. Nabu was the false god, and so you have there somebody who's not worshiping the God of the scriptures. We are living in Babylon now. There, I was raised by parents was born in the 70s and and, uh, upper elementary school was in the 80s, and that was the birth in America of what has become known as the, was termed the moral majority. Anybody remember the days of the moral majority? Probably everybody post-millennial remembers those days of the moral majority where the Christians got together and said, hey, we actually want to go and take over the institutions of culture. I mean, I remember going to a concert as a kid with my family called America, You're Too Young to Die. This was the goal to save America, and we we're going to do it by electing the right people to office. This became a huge, powerful force during the Reagan years of the 80s, led by Jerry Falwell. We are no longer in the moral majority world. Okay? The James Dobsons have come and gone. That, that kind of impulse is, is no longer seen. And the younger leaders, like myself and Gen X, or the millennials, we realize that, hey, we're not seeking control, but... You know, there's a push for credibility. Does our faith have a place to stand in the public square? We have moved from the moral majority to a cultural minority. When it comes to our institutions and culture, the Bible is not popular. When you start to quote it, people will roll their eyes. I, I, I think because of the founding of this country, there will always be uh, an aspect of freedom of religion, in the, in the public space, but you also realize that when you walk into spaces and culture, there is not freedom of religion. Like, if you bring your religion into the public square, it's like, no, you can keep that into your church house on Sunday, but don't bring it into this place here. So we have imbibed also on the values of Babylon. Kinnaman says in the book, our contention is that today's society is especially and insidiously faith-repellent. Our society is faith-repellent. So we see this uh, archetype is even affecting our current culture. We, just, just think for a moment how the culture interprets truth and what they believe about the gospel, okay? So we believe truth is found in God's self-revelation through the Word and through the person of Christ, okay? Where does the culture at large, what is the cultural narrative about where you find truth? If I were to say that, what is truth in the culture, what would they say? 
It's in yourself. What's your passion? It's your experience, right? So that's diametrically opposed, right? That's Babylon in its terminology. We believe in the God of the Scriptures, right? The God is revealed through, through the Bible. What does culture largely believe is God or who is God? God or, or whoever you want it to be, right? Hey, you can worship that God. You can worship that God. You can worship that God. Origins. We believe as Christians that we are here by God's design, okay? What is the cultural narrative about our origins? Okay? We are products of chance, okay? Bible says as humans, we are creating the image of God and our purpose is to bring glory to Him. What do we believe about the purpose of humanity? What does the culture believe at large? I don't, yeah, it's, it's, my, it's my pursuit of happiness. Whatever will make me happy. In sin, we believe sin is missing God's mark and there's a standard for righteousness, but in the culture at large, it's relativism. There's no personal responsibility. Salvation, we believe salvation is found through Jesus Christ, that the best way to live is the life with Jesus where you make him your king and you follow him. What is the cultural script around salvation? What saves our souls? Success, power, morality, pleasure, and money. That, that's our salvation, right? I say, I say in this new world, in this Babylon, politics has become the new religion. This is where people worship. This is where they spend their Saturdays. This is where they volunteer. This is what they talk about on social media. It is the God because there's a subtle belief that if I get to power with my values, then I can change the world to the utopia that I believe uh, should be. So there's this huge fear in the elections. I mean, it's just unusual how much panic there is around our elected leaders. I mean, there's just such fear. I just I go into donor meetings and everyone's panicked about Bernie Sanders. Like even like, you know, dear Christian friends are like, man, if Bernie wins, like we got a huge problem for my company. And I just want to say to them, like, if you think Bernie Sanders is bad for your pocketbook, try Jesus. I mean, he's like way more threatening than Bernie. I mean, he could give you a wealth tax. Jesus said, give it all, right? So I'm not afraid of Bernie. I'm not afraid of, I, I, we, don't, we don't need to be afraid of who's in power. The Bible says we should pray for those in power so we can actually live our lives in godliness and honesty. Politics is a means to an end. It is not the end, folks. Don't put, don't put your stock there. We believe in the restoration of all things that through the church of Jesus Christ, God will have this renewing presence in the culture. Like if you were here last night at the close of the retreat, boy, what a beautiful time. Like people loving each other shedding tears and hugging each other, giving affirmation to each other. And a, and a stripe of every version of humanity you can imagine was in this room. We believe in that this script that has led us to the hot. But when you follow the cultural script that has led us to the highest suicide ever, mental illness, this polarization in culture, everybody who's paying attention knows something's deeply broken. You know why? It's following the wrong God. This is Babylon. And what does Babylon want for God's people. What is Babylon's goal for you? If you read as was read in verse 4, it says to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans was the goal with Daniel as he's brought into the court of Nebuchadnezzar. What are they trying to do? It's cultural assimilation. 
It was an education program that was both cultural and religious. They wanted the language changed. They wanted to teach them the literature of their country, customs. They changed their names. They changed their diet. What was this? We no longer want any remnant of these, this God that you have back in Jerusalem. You're now going to worship our gods, and you're going to do life the way we want it to. Here's a real stark example. When they changed their names, okay, Daniel's name meant God is my refuge and judge. They changed his name to Belteshazzar. Bel, protect his life. Bel is a pagan god. Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious to Shadrach, the command of Aku, the moon god. So every single uh, one of those four were changed. Why? We are going to give you a different name because we want no mention of the God of the Scriptures in the Babylonian court. They wanted to obliterate it. So I'm going to ask you, what does it feel like to be a Christian in the court of Babylon? Because, folks, you're there. If you're bringing your faith with any strength into your workplace, into your environment, into your social circles, you're figuring out what that's like, and you have those feelings. What does it feel like? intense. We talked about this in CG last week. Fear. Judgment. You're called a bigot. Yes, you're left on the outside. Anybody feel overwhelmed by the tidal wave of culture? It's like you can't even keep up. So we're confused. I, uh, I don't know if you can see this real well. By the way, when we designed the building, I just made the architect say, we're not putting a screen in the center of this auditorium. So that's why we have two smaller screens, by the way. But So uh, what does it feel like to live in Babylon as a Christian? This is a, a, a Barna poll. And if you look in the second column, the percent of evangelicals who feel misunderstood is 65%. Persecuted, 60%. I might argue that. Marginalized, 53 Jump over to column four about the millennials, right? Go down to the last two lines. Afraid to speak up, 47% are afraid to speak up, 38% afraid to look stupid. Okay? These are practicing Christian millennials. Look at the difference in generations, right? 31% of practicing Christians are afraid to speak up. The millennials, 47%. Millennials are paying attention. They get it. Like the faith I was raised in is no longer accepted in the public square. And then look what's happening to the numbers, right? So if you look at the, the bright green, that's the percent that actually profess to some religion. That's 68%. That's not just Christianity. That's all. But then look at the no religion. It goes from the boomers at 9% to 29% in the millennials. Just follow those two trends up, and you've got three or four generations, folks, where the vast majority of the culture is going to have no faith and no religion at all. So unless there's a divine intervention of God in another great awakening, this is what Babylon is going to look like. So how does a Christian then live in Babylon? How do you live in Babylon? I first of all want to tell you there's, this is nothing new. There are always times where the church has been the majority and it has moved to the minority and back again. Where would we possibly go as a body of believers to find out what it's like to live as a minority? What? <laughs> what did you say, Marcus? Aurora. <laughs> Would we know anybody who's faced cultural whitewashing, forced assimilation, 
What it's like to navigate a majority culture doesn't believe like you, right? So Marcus is going to actually take that topic here next week because I think Marcus has spent most of his life trying to figure this thing out as it relates to his culture. There is great uh, similarities then to our faith. And so I would say to those in majority culture, this is a chance for you actually to go talk with people in the minority culture and say, can you talk to me what it's like? Because you know what? I need to learn what it's like to live as a minority. And believe me, they can instruct us. And then choose your approach. Choose your approach. When you look at this passage here, Daniel had a choice that he could either assimilate to the culture, separate from the culture, or figure out how to live in the culture and hold his values. So with assimilation, what is assimilation? This is compromise. This is, I'm so afraid of not being liked, I embrace the claims of the culture and the commitments of the dominant culture. It's the path of least resistance. You fit in with the status quo, you don't like the awkward moments, and you just do what you want to do. But you assimilate into the culture. The problem is you actually get colonized by the culture. And I think this is what happened to the church. The church, the American church, is so drunk on being accepted and liked and on the shows and in power, and they want to be appreciated by everybody. They can't stand culture looking at them and saying, hey, I don't like you. I don't like what you stand for here. And so they get colonized by the culture. And we have churches caving all the time on this, folks. They want the kingdom, but they don't want the king. They'll often say to you, they'll either openly tell you that the Bible is not really the authoritative word of God, or they'll spend a lot of time re-explaining the texts, saying you don't really understand what the Bible says. Nearly two-thirds of all young adults who were once regular churchgoers have dropped out at one time or another. You know what I think it is? Their faith actually wasn't very real. And it never was real. It was just a popular thing to do. So when it's not popular, why go? Why be part of this? That's the assimilation approach. On the other side, you have the separation approach. We can think of the Amish, right? They have basically looked at the culture and said it's going to hell in a handbasket, so we're going to form our own separate communes. This, this, was the, this is the approach of fundamentalism. I was raised in this type of spirit where separation was the answer, and we all had our proof texts to kind of back that up, okay? So I, as a kid, was not allowed to play on sport teams in my city because I might hear a swear word, okay? That's a separatist mindset, right? I was raised in that. And the, the verses were, come out from among them and be ye separate. Now, you might laugh, but Rod, Rod Reyer just came out with a New York Times bestseller called The Benedict, Benedict Option. He is saying it is time for Christians to no longer play in those other two circles, it is time to separate and form our own communities, our own educational institutions, uh, and all of his examples are the, are the Benedictine monks, okay? And this is hot news right now if you're paying attention. Christians should withdraw inward to deepen and purify and preserve their faith. They should secede from mainstream culture, pull their children from public schools, and put down roots in separate communities. There's a problem, I think, with Dreyer's option. Jesus never told anybody to retreat to a desert and pray their whole lives. I was at a CCDA conference two years ago, and they praised this guy who prayed in a cave for 30 years, and I thought, what a waste of a life. <laughs> Jesus never commanded us to go pray in a cave for 30 years. He said, go and make disciples, Amen. right? And this pietistic uh, 
uh, rationale for removing from culture, I think, is a wrong approach. Now, you can disagree with me on that, okay? But I just don't see anywhere in Scripture where Jesus, for, for your lifetime, said separation was the answer. So then you have, then, dedication and accommodation. And I put those two words there, and I played with them a lot in my study this week about if those were the right words or not. And they may not be, but what I'm trying to say is this. There's a dedication to have a resilient faith and values. The Bible says in this passage, Daniel purposed in his heart. To have this resilient faith and values, and you're dedicated to it, and you're not going to move. But then secondly, this accommodation. An accommodation, I don't think, is a negative word here. This is my ability to work inside a culture to love, accept, and listen to all people. I can hold my faith, and I can be in a pluralist society. David Brooks uh, took on, in the New York Times, he took on Dreyer's option, and he basically called for an orthodox pluralism. Can we be dedicated in our orthodoxy and also live in a pluralistic society? And, and that means the church then, essentially, I like to think of the church as a city within a city, a community within a larger city. If you're part of Providence, folks, we are not assimilationist. We are not giving up the gospel, and we're not separatists. We're not withdrawing. We are going to focus on this middle circle. It may not be for you, but that we're going to lay it out clear what that means here as a church. I believe this is biblical. In Jeremiah, when, when he's instructing the people of the Lord on how to live in Babylon, he says, to all the exiles who I'm sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat what they produced, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you'll find your welfare. This is our city within a city. And you know what? We are going to build houses here. And we are going to seek the welfare of the city where God has sent us into exile. This means we choose a countercultural way. We are... Uh, tethered to the truth of the Word of God and confident enough in it that we can also live alongside those with whom we disagree. We must support the right of every single person in our city to live by his or her conscience and accommodate one another even when we hold an opposing view. But when it comes, comes time to say what we believe, we don't hesitate to stand out. And I'm going to tell you, this is not easy. It's actually way easier to play in those other circles. But Providence has never, never taken the easy path. So the Bible says, you know, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's the famous Christian dating passage, you know, <laughs> with the passage nothing to do with dating, you know. What's the idea of the unequal yoke? It's you're yoked together with somebody, and one of them cows is really big and strong, and one is real small and weak. Do you know how that, that thing's going to go? Not very well, right? And you might be the big cow, right? And you're yoked together with somebody and it's dragging you down. Or you might be the small cow and you're just drug along by the culture. Basically, don't be unequally yoked. Whatever relationship you get into, you better be able to hold your own and hold who you are and be able to walk that out. So I say, choose your approach and then choose your weapons, probably the wrong word is weapons. You can call it tools. 
But I say there's two tools you need to really develop. One is this deep conviction. I love verse 8. It says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. In other words, I have moved out of Jerusalem, the place of God's law, but I'm still placing myself underneath God's law. Right? Defile occurs 11 times in the New Testament. What it's talking about there is he basically felt like the diet was going to defile his beliefs. And he was being forced to eat the king's food. What, what was the big deal about the food? There's 10 different opinions on this. I think the one that makes the most sense in the context here is that many of the foods that were eaten at the Babylonian court would have been unclean according to the law of Moses, pork and horse flesh. And it would have been a sin for him because the blood was not drained yet from the meat. Second, part of the meat was offered to the Babylonian gods before being sent to the king, and so the meat was associated with idolatrous worship, and he was saying, that would be wrong for me to do that. So I am going to purpose in my heart not to defile myself with the king's meat. So see how Daniel's sitting there? He's, he's in the world, but he's not of the world. And he basically has this deep conviction, but then godly wisdom as well. Godly wisdom. Most problems you're going to face in Babylon do not have a Bible verse to tell you what to do. The Bible was not designed to be a manual to help you through every single situation. It is there to give guidance and to provide wisdom, but 90% of the decisions in life need godly wisdom on how to navigate it. And this is why, folks, I've quit giving up judgment on why, if it's not clear in Scripture, a Christian might take a different view than another. I'm going to say, if the Bible says it, I'm standing firm. If it's not, there's a ton of grace there. But I have had church members in the last, this last, last week, I got a phone call like, hey, uh, there's a vaccination bill in the Senate, and I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but there are two vaccines I don't want my kids to have out of moral beliefs. But if we don't get those two vaccinations for our kids, they'll be labeled at school. Well, I can have home visits. Like, it's really kind of big brother, and what do I do? Folks, there's no Bible verse to answer that. You need wisdom. Do I pull my kids out of the school? What do I do? Do I stand up? Do I go lobby in the legislature? We need wisdom. You need wisdom to navigate your vocation, to discern your education, to develop good relationships, and to engage your culture. The Bible says in Ezekiel 28 that Daniel was the standard against which we measure wisdom. So if you plunge in in the next eight weeks as we pick apart Daniel, Daniel's going to show you how to navigate living in Babylon and holding your conviction. What do you mean by navigating your vocation? A lot of you are in workplaces where it's, it's, it's not declared to be you know, Christian in nature, or your boss may not be a believer, and you might be asked to do things, right, that maybe help the bottom line, but they violate your beliefs. They might, they might cause you to want to deceive other people or to uh, exhibit prejudice or to mistreat the powerless, and you got to sit there and figure out how to navigate that. That's going to take wisdom. Discern the education. Daniel had to go into this education system. Part of that, they were known for astrology. Could you go in and study the stars and not take on all the superstition they were going to attach to it? This is the job of any parent who is sending your kid through any education in Babylon. You are going to have to actually be the re-educator to them. And you have to decide how much you can take. Parents, you have a huge job ahead of you. 
Wisdom to develop good relationships. Later on in this passage, we won't unpack it today. But Daniel built relationships with those in the court because he ended up asking for a compromise on how he could go through with his diet in this certain way. Folks, that takes skill. Gone are the days where you can walk in and say, this is what I believe and I'm standing I'm going to do it. You're fired. Right? Babylon doesn't work that way. You actually got to be savvy and wise as serpents and harmless as doves to walk in and find that third path. Romans 12, 18 says, as much as it's possible within you, live peaceably with all. So Daniel could walk the tightrope of partial cultural assimilation without his religious and moral compromise. And then, wisdom to engage the culture. I like this rubric right here. Four ways that you have to approach every single issue in Babylon. You have to sit there and say, it's no longer, I just give a cookie-cutter answer. People are going to ask you what you really believe. What is right, what is wrong, what is confused, and what is missing. Let's just take this issue of sexuality. What is right? Our job is to celebrate it and cultivate it. I think the church has done a poor job, and I can take the blame here myself. Do we celebrate good married sexuality? We don't ever talk about it. We never had a workshop on how to have a good sex life. That's biblical, right? (laughs) There's Bible passages about it. So we need to celebrate it and cultivate it. What is wrong? What do we have to stop and confront? Well, folks, we have the hookup culture. We have this thing called Tinder, right? We have sex trafficking. We have sex with whoever and whomever and whenever you want. We have porn that's run amok that has just destroyed the lives of of men and women in marriages. We see some kickback in the Me Too movement where where women are finally standing up and saying, we no longer want this, uh, this abuse and this rape and this harassment, right? We, we step and we confront what's wrong. And then what's confused? Well, there's probably no greater area in our culture right now where there is more confusion as what the Scripture says and what culture allows in this issue of sexuality. So we clarify and we compel people to live a biblically, sexually faithful life. What is missing? We create and catalyze. We teach and we demonstrate. Okay. So this is where we can actually hold up the ideal of the Scripture and say, follow this, this is the way to human flourishing. All right, how can the church thrive in Babylon? I want to encourage you here in closing with several key things. One, encourage each other to trust the sovereignty of God. Encourage each other to trust the sovereignty of God. If you look back in the passage, it basically says uh, that the Lord gave Judah into his hand. I want you to know this. God's the one who sent Daniel and the Israelites into captivity and into exile. That was done by God. That was not Satan's work. That was God's work. Okay? The reason we're moving into Babylon is because God's doing it. Right? There are satanic forces at play, but they're all subservient to a sovereign God. If you read all of Daniel chapter 1, which I encourage you this week, you'll see three or four times where you see the sovereignty of God at work. So when we say we're going to love God together, we have to encourage each other. You know what? God's the big one on the throne here. He has not lost control of this thing, and we can trust him. They were thrown into Babylon, if you trace back to the Old Testament law, because they fundamentally disobeyed God and went into idolatry. 
you'd be hard-pressed to not look at our culture and say it hasn't done the same thing, and even the church doing the exact same thing. But Daniel would say in chapter 4, the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world, and he gives them to anyone he chooses. It is in exile that we learn to trust God. So when we move into Babylon here, that prayer room ought to be packed all the time. You know why? We need God. we got to trust his sovereignty more than the sovereignty of our present king. Then committing to help one another to be resilient disciples. I don't have time to unpack all of this, but basically, Daniel had friends. Part of loving our church family together is getting together and wrestling through these issues together. Going to church on a Sunday morning once a month and calling yourself a Christian will no longer hold up in Babylon. It never has, right? So toss out casual Christianity. If that's you, you either got to jump in or jump out because mediocre, uh, halfway Christianity is not going to work. You, you got to get the full thing. I, mean, we, I, I, I have a young man in my CG who's getting his Ph.D., and he's off on a retreat for three days to talk about identity. Right? And you know the topic that's being brought up. How, in a, as a Christian going for a Ph.D., do you finally try to find academic credibility, hold your Christian values, and talk about this? I mean, identity has blown up in our culture. I mean, he's going to need friends around him to support him, to walk this thing through and say, what does a Christian do in this place? And then third is resolve to love our neighbor together in such a way that makes Jesus beautiful. And he is beautiful. I want you to know this. The Bible is pretty clear that God cares about Babylon. He hasn't forgotten it. If we go over to Jonah, uh, he says to Jonah, shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? That the 120,000 Ninevites, God cared about each one of them, and his desire was for the people that were made in his image to create a unique way of being in God's story and to form a culture. God cares about every citizen of Babylon, and so we are to love our neighbors. That means, folks, that we have a radical acceptance of all people in the church. There should not be a single soul in our city that when they walk through these doors would not be radically accepted, loved, hugged, and brought into relationship with us. Not a single person. We have a core group of people here that said we're covenant partners. That says, you know what, in this, in this community here, I've covenanted to live a certain way. Not everyone's going to want to sign that covenant, folks. And God's called us to love our neighbors, and it used to be a posture where uh, the people that believed different were on the outside. That's no longer what Babylon looks like. They're, they are all over. Everyone here is a citizen, and we are to love our neighbors equally. This, this model here helped me uh, think about this, and it's called the bounded set versus the centered set. The old way of doing church, I think, was on the left side. You are in or you are out. And that was the focus, and the focus was all about the red line. Here at Providence, we're going to be a centered set. We are all about a piping hot representation of Jesus at the center, and there are going to be people moving towards it, people moving away from it, people walking around it. But our job as covenant partners at the very piping hot center is just live out as Jesus in as beautiful way as we possibly can. That is our goal. And folks, we get to actually present the real Jesus to people. 
Because he is clouded over even by religion and Christianity. Deep within our city's fiber. One of the great sadnesses of our city is the Sand Creek Massacre. Where we walked into Sand Creek, and if you read um, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, where we walked in and just opened fire on this entire Native American village and wiped it out. The Sand Creek Massacre. Folks, we just apologized for that in the last decade. Do you know who led that charge? A Methodist preacher. A convicted Methodist preacher. Like, he, that was his gospel. That, that is not Jesus. That was not Jesus. Could it not be that the reason the younger generation is leaving the church because all they see is a new form of genocide and a new form of discrimination and a new form of the out factor with everybody and they got problems with everybody else versus saying, hey, we're going to love people and even get really good at loving people that may never hold the same values that we hold. This is why I think cross-purpose is all the more important to our Christian witness. Because for some people, if you were in this room yesterday, if you've been an ally... It's some of the most powerful love people will ever feel. We want Jesus to be displayed in all of his beauty. So our goal in closing is to equip you to live as fully devoted followers of Jesus who are resiliently faithful and live a countercultural, vibrant life in the Spirit through the community of this church in Denver. And we do this in the name of our Lord. Daniel is just a picture of Jesus. Jesus allowed, God allowed uh, Daniel to be taken from the promised land to sinful Babylon, and the Father sent his Son into this sinful world to save it. In Daniel, uh, he was obedient to God's laws in Babylon, and Jesus was obedient to God's will in all things. As God guided Daniel to a place of great authority in Babylon, God also guided his Son to live on this earth for 33 years, but to a place of ultimately greater authority. God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the one we follow. This is our King. And we get these great words of comfort in Romans, where it says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It doesn't say, folks, in spite of all these things. It says, in all these things we are more than conquerors. That means in Babylon, God will equip you through his church to be more than conquerors. Prepare to not be liked. Prepare to live in this confusing space. But we want a church that can stand for generations and live a vibrant, thriving life, holding to the truth of the scripture and radically loving all people. That's the vision that we want to unpack in the next Uh, seven weeks. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear God in heaven, Lord, we we live in new times. And Lord, we're thankful for it. Rather than approaching in fear, we walk into it and say we actually get to test our faith to see its reality. And in a world that seems to have worshipped every idol out there, Lord, we love money so much in this town. We, We coat our capital dome in gold. This is our idol. It's what made this city. It's what drives this city. Lord, if it whatever it takes to crush that spirit and crush that idol, do it. But Lord, we, we honestly believe the most powerful thing is probably not through the state house, 
It's not through the institutions, but it's just through your people living out who you are. So Lord, firm us up. I pray for the sheep in here. My heart hurts for those who've already assimilated and walked away. Names are flashing through my mind. I pray for those, Lord, that you would bring them back into your, into your church. Lord, I pray especially for those in the core of this congregation, that whatever fears they have, you would come and walk alongside them as they endeavor to stand for you in this world. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. The prayer team is up here. And uh, we'll pray with you if the Lord's spoken anything in your life that you feel needs to be addressed.